Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside Indie Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideIndieSports.com on the Rivals Network. The Inside Indie Sports Podcast is presented by Dead Soxy, the makers of premium socks you need to get your feet into. I was wearing some of my Dead Soxy dress socks on Friday, and you know, with my old dress socks, I used to come home, and then as soon as I got home, I would take them off, but... That's not the case with these Dead Soxy dress socks. That's because their patented technology has a no-slip guarantee that prevents the socks from rolling down your leg. And they're a premium product made from bamboo for that luxury feel. They just feel good on your feet, so you can just wear them the rest of your day and not even feel like you're inconveniencing yourself. Dead Soxy also does custom socks for organizations looking to create unique swag, perfect for corporate gifts around the holidays. So you can mix and match with designs and colors, and I know they have some colors coming that our listeners might be particularly interested in. Whether you're looking for traditional dress socks, no-shows, or casuals, DeadSoxy.com has all the socks you need. And because Dead Soxy has partnered with us, you can use code LUCKY, L-U-C-K-Y, at checkout for 25% off your order. Support from sponsors like Dead Soxy allows us to continue to do this podcast, so we'd appreciate if you'd support them as well. Notre Dame couldn't pull off the upset at Ohio State on Saturday. The Irish showed they belonged in a tough 24-10 loss, but the Buckeyes imposed their will late to beat the Irish. Perhaps a third time will be a charm for Marcus Freeman, who's still looking for his first win as Notre Dame's head coach. There's a good chance that will happen Saturday in Notre Dame Stadium when the Irish host Marshall. It will also be Notre Dame's first game on NBC this season, so that seemed like a good Good as time of any to invite NBC Sports host and reporter Corey Robinson back onto the podcast. Corey, a former Notre Dame wide receiver, hosts the ND on NBC podcast, which features interviews with ND players, coaches, and personalities on a weekly basis during the season. Corey, thanks for joining us. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me, guys. Absolutely. Corey, I'm curious. Let's just start with the Ohio State game. What was your biggest takeaway from the occurrences in Columbus? Uh, Well... Let's let's see where to begin. My eyes went straight to Tyler Buckner. I was curious. I don't know about you guys, but you know, being that young, being that gifted, I, I mean, he is very gifted. I was curious to see how he would handle the pressure. At times last season, it didn't look like he made the best decisions. It looked at almost sometimes he wasn't reading. You know, like he was almost just kind of like doing what the coach told him to do versus like understanding and reading the game in real time. But I mean, he was a he was a freshman. Like, what do you expect? This year, I wanted to see if he kind of evolved. And that first half, it looked as though he was making some strides forward, which is very encouraging. Um, the second half, a completely different story. The, the other thing that jumped out to me was the, the right side of the offensive line was just every single sack or every single tackle for loss, any type of breakdown in the run all happened on the right side. So that was Zeke Carell and, and Josh Lug. And the left side, even without Jared Patterson, who had that right um, foot sprain, Still, Andrew Kosopic filled in, and the left side was very strong throughout the entire game. You could see how Tommy Reese was trying to establish a run game, but he had no right side of the offensive line. So at the beginning of the game, there was almost nothing he could do to establish a run game, and he ended up doing like very creative things like, you know, doing screens and giving the ball, getting a, doing empty sets and bringing the, the running back in motion and trying to do kind of like jet sweeps to establish a run game, but the, the leading rusher was Tyler Buckner. That's the quarterback, right? I mean, so I, I feel like that was one of the biggest gaping holes that then set up the lackluster offense in the second half was they're trying to establish a run game with half of an offensive line, and you just can't do that against the number two team in the country. Corey, I wanted to get your thoughts on the 
offensive game plan from this standpoint. Um, you know, there's been games, and I think you were involved with several of them from time to time, where Notre Dame wanted to keep the ball away from the other offense. And that Florida State game in 2014, that epic game that you were involved in, it was an 87-57 differential for Notre Dame in offensive plays. And, and it was very similar to the Music City Bowl that same season in LSU. Now, didn't Notre Dame suppressed its own plays? There was only 48. Uh, but do you think that was a sound game plan, that Notre Dame was better off just trying to shorten the game, even if the offense looked boring, predictable, you know, a lot of the things that people have emailed me and put on our message board? <laughs> Look, when you have three guys, you know, preseason, you're looking at potentially three Heisman Trophy candidates looking at you <laughs> from the other side of the line. I would I would not want them to be on the field either, right? So I think on paper that siege mentality worked in the first half. You look at the the possession differential; it was just wild to me. I was looking at the, the halftime stats, and Notre Dame almost doubled the time of possession. I think Ohio State was limited to under ten minutes of possession for the entire first half, and you could see that they were thrown off their game. The, the, the one moment that I think is is most indicative of that was. Uh, remember right before the half ended with under a minute to go, Ohio State's in the enviable position to basically, you know, get a two for one score and then get the ball back because they deferred at the beginning of the game. They call a timeout. And uh, sorry, I think a timeout was called. I'm, I'm not sure which one it was. Uh, but I, but anyways, the, the timeout was called. They, they call the play. They get to the line of scrimmage and it was a bunch formation. The receivers are still getting lined up and CJ Stroud snapped the ball. So they're like a second and a half late to react to the ball being snapped. And that was coming out of a timeout, you know, in the red zone. In, a, in like the most critical moment of the game up to that point and end up being an incomplete pass. So that to me, that little bit of comedy errors, I think showed the, the discombobulation that Ohio State's offense kind of experienced that first half, just not being in a rhythm. And then you could see Jay Stroud's comments after the game. And he's like, yeah, just trying to get back into the rhythm of things, playing in front of fans. It was kind of a lot. And I think those two things combined played in Notre Dame's favor but once you saw Ohio State start putting together large drives like in the second half uh, towards the end of the third quarter they had this one drive that was almost five minutes long right if you think about it that was that's half of the possession time of the entire first half for Ohio State in one single drive and then they went on and built off of that and had that almost eight minute long drive and then you see the possession time completely flip and then Ohio State has 32 minutes possession to Notre Dame's 27 and some change. So, I mean, to me, it was a sound game plan and it worked for the first half. But then once they got momentum, that, that offense, you can't, you can't get them any type of momentum. Corey, were, were you surprised that Notre Dame's wide receivers only combined for three catches? And, and is, does, is there an added pressure when you're playing wide receiver knowing that maybe the, the opportunities are going to be limited like they were for, for Notre Dame? Yeah, you know what? That's a really interesting question because I thought Lorenzo Styles, first of all, I thought this was going to be his year. He's an amazing receiver. And then you think about like the ties that his family has to Ohio State and his ties to Ohio State. I thought this was going to be his breakout game. First play, he makes a big catch. Right. I was like, this is going to be it. This is this is Lorenzo's time. And then I don't think they went back to him the rest of the game. And I was so confused. Um, the outside, basically, the way that I saw the game was the insides you had – the belly was exposed. There were seams all day and they were quicking. But the thing about that type of football is that you have to make decisions quickly. You have to be able to read quickly and you have to be able to, uh, you know, be decisive and get the ball out. 
and be patient. This is like the, the older kind of like QB as operator versus QB as kind of like magician. And like I said, Tyler Buckner is a sophomore. And that was one thing I was looking to see. Well, would he be satisfied taking, you know, Michael Mayer stick routes and choice routes by uh, Lorenzo Styles for 12 yards and just eating up the field that way? Or does everything need to be a Matt Salerno, you know, diving catch by the sideline that was, you know, epic, but that's, that's pretty hard to do. It's hard to replicate. And the answer was no, you know, they didn't have that patience. And like I said before, with half an offensive line, it's difficult to get around that. So as a receiver, if you're in that position, you have to think, okay, we have to build momentum, get the ball to your playmaker. And I think that the Notre Dame offense should have gotten the ball to Lorenzo Styles far more often sooner and Michael Mayer sooner. You know, I, that's always my thing with Michael Mayer is like throw him the ball as soon as possible. Often. Like I, I think a lot of times we wait until like the you know, later in the game to get him more and more involved. To me, I'd be throwing him the ball early and often. The things that uh, you mentioned, Corey, uh, in, in terms of maybe what, um, Tyler didn't read or or wasn't looking for that were available to him in the passing game. If you were to put a timeline on that, when your expectation would be that he could not master those things, but at least have a some kind of command of those, be able to be um, adept at at doing that. I mean, are we talking Las Vegas October eighth against BYU? Or are we talking November? Uh, or are we talking this weekend at home? I mean, what what's your sense of how quickly he can get to that point? He's he's really smart. So, I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of Tyler Buckner. So I, I have no doubt that now that he there is no sharing of the job, he can get all the reps. He can learn from these mistakes. I think this was actually a good thing for him to have a great first half. I think it was eight for eight over, through over 100 yards, right? Um, and like I said, this was all the while without – a run game. And you think about how hard that is. You're talking about boring and predictable. Imagine how hard it is to be a sophomore quarterback trying to run an offense without an established run game. So now Ohio State's defense basically says, okay, we know you can't run the ball. We're just going to lock up your receivers and make you make incredible pitches and catches, you know, against our defense, which, you know, you guys struggled against last year because it's Jim Knowles' defense from Oklahoma State. And then to think that, we know this is your weakest area, you know, because who are your receivers? Your Avery Davis is no longer your, your leading receiver. Your, your senior receiver is not even available. So that that kind of um, uh, card being dealt to Tyler Buckner, I think, was very difficult, an extremely difficult hand. And he handled it extremely well in that first half. And eventually, you know, like, like I said, Ohio State got some momentum and you just couldn't keep it going. I think for me, that decision-making will come once he feels more comfortable. And I think we're talking a couple games. I think Marshall's going to be very important um, as far as just building momentum for Tyler Buckner. I, I think as long as he feels confident and he knows with, with surety where he's going and why he's doing what he's doing and he doesn't second guess, I think he'll be able to, to lock in. You know, your guess is as good as mine, but to me, it's going to happen this season. I just don't know when. I would say earlier rather uh, than later. So maybe a couple games. Corey, let's talk a little bit about Notre Dame's defense. How impressed were you with what they were able to do against C.J. Stroud and that Ohio State offense? Yeah, you know, I was really, really stoked about it, to be honest with you. I mean, limiting them to seven points um, in the first half, like I said, with all of the with all of the challenges the offense, the offense had, to me, was nothing short of incredibly impressive. You know, I, I was I thought the defense played very well. Um the, the second half, though, you could start seeing 
can start to fall apart. The front seven, I think, did a really, 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 really good job um, until the fourth quarter uh, when the run game started popping off. I, I will say the one question I always had with the Notre Dame defense was the secondary. And I, I thought Brandon Joseph played well, you know, tr- to be a transfer to come in and, and, and play well. I, I thought that was, I thought that's a really good sign, um, you know, as far as his development. and Because defense is about, like, embodying an identity. And I think he just came in and did a really good job. So very excited there. But for your leading tackler to be Clarence Lewis, that just tells you right away that you're getting to the second level because um, your cornerback should not be your leading tack- tackler. So that, that's some structural things I, I, I think that, that Notre Dame's defense needs to address. But all in all, that front seven is so strong and so so um, – their fortitude to me is is one of the, the highlights of this team. And to be completely honest with you, Tyler, I think that defense is kind of like it's kind of a formality in today's college football game. You know, it's kind of like padded seven on seven. So in my mind, if you can limit a team to under 30 points, like a game, like you're doing pretty good. You know, like sure. the third down, that is where it matters. And the third down efficiency in the first half was incredible for for the for the Notre Dame defense. Second half, not so much. Um, and that's the, the thing that separated this this game. You look at Notre Dame's third down you know, efficiency on offense, Notre Dame, um, just really bad. I think they only had converted on three third downs, whereas Ohio State that first half, they were right in the same neighborhood. Um, the second half, they were able to convert, and that's what made the difference. Corey, I wanted to circle back to the offensive line. You were at Notre Dame when Harry Heastan was there the first time. And uh, there were some pretty good offensive linemen, but but not every year were they great. Um, but just in terms of the rhythm of the season, do you remember, I mean, did it take a little while in September for those, the better offensive lines to get their traction and get their chemistry? Or do you remember them being pretty good out of the shoot and uh, and maybe maybe people should be as worried as they were after the game? <laughs> Yeah, I think, like I said, when you have Jared Patterson not playing, that, I mean, the offensive line at Notre Dame, historically, you have people who are these, um, they carry the culture, right? And Jared is that person for for this offensive line. So that's like not having Mike McGlinchey or Ronnie Stanley or, you know, Quinn Nelson, you know, or like Zach Martin. You know, like imagine playing a football game without Zach Martin, you know, on your offensive line, like as far as embodying culture. Uh, so that, to me, the way that the offensive line responded in that in the face of that adversity and Christophe being him step up, I thought was encouraging to see. Um, but I don't think you can put a grade out on an offensive line without Jared Patterson. But to answer your question, yes, the week by week, um, they're going to get, you know, the chemistry will will obviously develop more and more but I think it was just kind of an unfair assessment of this offensive line at this point given you know that reason but the right side of the offensive line is concerning to me there's no doubt about that Corey you're so eloquent you made me forget what the original question was so I appreciate (laughs) you circling back (laughs) (laughs) sorry about that no no need to apologize uh um Corey I think Fans a lot of time want, and and media as well, want to sort of overreact to one game and, and make like grand projections for the rest of the season based off what they saw in, in, in one game. What, As a former player, I'm curious if your perspective to, to that is different. Do you get wrapped up in what you saw against Ohio State and then change what you thought about the season 
moving forward or you just sort of take that as maybe just one small piece of input and then maybe not overreact one way or the other yeah the best way to think about it is you reset you know shoot or shoot and i come from a basketball family so you got to understand the shooter mentality and that's the only way you could live on the football team you live week to week right in that sense where it doesn't matter what your last shot was like if i airballed a three-pointer guess what the next one's going in like that's the mentality. It has to be the mentality or else you can't get on the court. You can't play basketball. You can't be a shooter, right? Because you're going to be, you're going to get in your own head and you're, you're going to miss the next shot. And it's the same with football where every game you have to believe that you're the best team in the world. Even if the evidence is not in your favor, it's kind of like this weird delusion that you have to believe. If you don't believe that, then you're going to get killed, you know, and that's just reality. Uh, and especially at Notre Dame, you look at this Marshall game coming up. I looked at their schedule. There's only two games televised right now on the books. You know, it's this one and then another game, I think, on ESPN2. So this is like, this is a huge game for Marshall, you know. So to be able to, if you think, oh, we should have done this against Ohio State, and they come out playing in their first and you know, one of two television games this entire season, um, that, that's going to be a, a problem for, for you, right? So that's kind of the, the mentality is always think, okay, what happened, happened. You watch the tape. Um, it's brutal. It hurts. You, you figure out, okay, what do we need to get better at? Um, you take away all the emotion. You just look at it completely sober and say, okay, I dropped that ball. Or, okay, I ran the wrong route here. Let's move forward. Let's address it. Next opponent. And you kind of forget about it. But then after the season's over and, you know, and then you're like, you know, talking with your friends, like, then you're like, oh, man, that really hurt. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but, but you can't let that happen in the season. Corey, um, Ohio State and Clemson and Alabama have been playoff regulars, and one of the reasons is they rack up five stars. They they just recruit at an elite level, and we have certainly seen Marcus Freeman surge with his recruiting, both as the defensive coordinator last year and as the head coach so far this year. But as you looked in that game, and, and you can, you know, when we looked at the Alabama game, you know, the bowl game and Clemson in the playoff, you know, you you could tell that there was more talent on one team than the other. In, in this game, did you have the same sense? Did you still say, okay, Notre Dame is still playing catch-up and recruiting here, or do you think the gap has narrowed between Notre Dame and maybe those three recruiting juggernauts? I think the gap has definitely narrowed, and then with the grad, you know, with the transfer portal as well, that helps. Um, but when, when I was watching the game field side at Columbus, what I saw was an Ohio State team that had to search for answers to beat an Notre Dame team. And I don't think I've ever seen that in a top five match. You know what I'm saying? Like, when I look at some of these games that Notre Dame's played in, especially like in the college football playoffs or, you know, in some of those big games, it never seems like teams are necessarily searching for answers. Ohio State, like, their back was against the wall. They looked confused. They looked discombobulated in the first half. They, they looked frustrated. And um, the fans were depleted. I had never been in an environment like that uh, where Notre Dame was seen as like a peer or like a, a, an actual threat, you know, in this instance, going into to the second half. Um, things changed, like I said, at the end of the third quarter. That's when everything really started to, to shift over momentum wise. Um, but that first half to me was incredibly encouraging. I think it, rem it was actually reminiscent of the Oklahoma State game remember in the Fiesta Bowl where first half I was like, I almost turned my TV off. I thought this was over, you know. I think what separates those teams you mentioned and Notre Dame right now at this current moment is, can you finish games? You have the talent. 
Now you just need the mentality to, to, to finish games. Um, and I think that's what separates the good from the great. And Notre Dame still isn't there yet. But talent-wise, I think they're I think they're there. Corey, I'm curious what what have been your impressions of Marcus Freeman as you, as you've observed and gotten to know more about him over the last year, and uh, how do you think he will be received by the home crowd on Saturday? He is a very charismatic leader. A very um, it, it's hard not to want to play for him, and I think the, the most interesting thing is when I was watching the game too, I feel like there was, I mean, actually all season really, it feels like there is a, like a very much a new era, you know, and I know we call it the Freeman era, but I feel like it's, I don't know about you guys, but I actually feel like you almost forget the past. Like it's, it's the first time we, at least for me, that I've been around Notre Dame where no one is, the past isn't lingering. If that makes sense, you know, like there's always shadows of glory with Notre Dame, but with this team, it just feels like this is the first time we're looking forward. And I think Coach Freeman has a has a big part of that. I think Coach Freeman and Coach Reese together being like so young and so like charismatic and so you know Re- Coach Reese is just in my personal opinion you know, he's one of the smartest guys football wise that I that I know. Uh, there's just so much hope there, and they connect with this generation, and even the feel too. Like I was watching one of the timeouts, and there's like three social media like <laughs> cameras and like like the, the whole recruiting around the game and creating all this content during the game it just feels like very new and modern and very forward-looking and I've never like I said I've never felt that around Notre Dame it always feels like we're we're like shrouded with the past if that makes sense. Corey before I ask you this next question I just wanted to get a little one and had you did you have any chance to go to any of the practices and training camp this fall? I did not. Okay. So, so you probably have not seen Tobias Merriweather practice. And since you were a freshman that got on the field and played, everybody will kind of wonder your thoughts on this. What is the challenge for somebody like Tobias Merriweather to get on the field for somebody like Jaden Thomas, who's a sophomore who didn't play any meaningful downs last year. And, and even Dion Colsey who played some, but did, wasn't terribly productive. What's the challenge for those three guys to be able to be contributors as a young, young receivers? Don't overthink it. You got recruited to play Notre Dame football because someone believed in you. They think you can do the job. It's really interesting. You know, sometimes you feel like an imposter, especially, you know, when you're out there in a top five matchup and you're out there and you're like, well, wait a second. I used to watch these games on TV like last year. (laughs) I used to watch these games. I used to dream about these games. I used to be in my backyard playing backyard football, imagining I was under the lights playing at Ohio Stadium. And now I'm here, you know, and there are 27 NFL teams in attendance. And it's like, well, what's going to happen? You know, that that feeling, you kind of can get into your own head until you realize that, you know, your team has seen you practice a ton of times and your coaches have seen you make plays a ton of times. And no one else is concerned. No one else is doubting that they trust you. You're out on the field in this situation. They wouldn't put you out there if they didn't trust you. And then if someone, Tyler Buckner, throws you the ball, then he trusts you and he believes in you. So then you just have to believe in yourself and realize that I don't, I'm not being asked to do anything extraordinary. I'm just asked to do exactly what I've been doing for months, which is go run a play that I know against the coverage that I've studied and catch the ball, which I've done a million times. You know, and and that once you kind of reduce it to the simple things, which is no one's asking you to be a hero. They're just asking you to be you. And uh, then then the game gets very easy. 
And it's very, it's, it just, it gets back to what it used to be, you know, just back to football versus, you know, whatever you build it up to in your mind, this kind of, you know, sort of monster. It's not a monster. It's just, just go be yourself. And that kind of sounds tacky, but it's true. Um, you, when, one of the things I think when you see young guys go out there, they try to do too much. And that is when bad things happen. Interceptions, you know, fumbles. It's like no one's asking you to break a tackle and go, you know, for a 90-yard touchdown every single time you touch the ball. Like, that's not what we're asking you to do. We're asking you to get catch a third down and move the chains. So just go run the route, catch third down, move the chains. And and my follow-up to that is, you know, Lorenzo Styles is the same uh, year as Deion Colsey and Jaden Thomas. And before we were starting to recording, we were talking to Corey, and he's the president of the Lorenzo Styles fan club, and I think we're co-vice presidents. I mean, we think it's going to happen from this year. But what's the transition going from a young guy with a lot of talent to being that alpha receiver? Because he's going to have to be that for Notre Dame to be dynamic, I think, on offense. I agree with you. Yeah. Will and I both played freshman year. And then Will became that alpha the next year where he, where he just blew up. And that I think he's in that same position where there's open space and Michael Mayer can't do it by himself. Everyone knows how great Michael Mayer is. He's like the best tight end in college football, hands down. But he needs help. And I think Lorenzo is that guy. In his mind, it's the same thing. He has to understand, well, you know, this is, I'm not privy to his thoughts. Um, but in the times that I have interacted with him in our meetings and stuff for, for Notre Dame football, he seems like a very thoughtful and stoic young man uh, with a very clear vision and with, with steely ambition. So for me, um, understanding that, you know, character, if I'm just going to do a quick caricature or a sketch of, of him as a person with that in, in mind, I think he understands that the opportunity in front of him. All he has to do is just basically spend a ton of time with Tyler <laughs> and, and, uh, Tyler Buckner, not Tyler James. Yeah, well, maybe <laughs> yeah. both, you know, but definitely Tyler Buckner and build that chemistry. Because if you want to be the alpha, the quarterback has to trust you and know that, hey, I got three guys coming at me or there's a blitz coming at me. I need someone to catch this ball. Because at the, at the end of the day, it's very similar to way, you know, like I used to work in an office building, like in a cubicle. If you need something done, and there might be someone whose job, you know, description is to do that thing. But if you don't trust them to do that thing and it's going to make you look bad, you're not going to send it to them. You know, you either do it yourself or you'll have one of your other friends like try to do it for you. Right. And, and that's kind of like the same in, in college football, where like if you're a quarterback and even if there's someone wide open, but if you don't trust them and it's their job to catch their number one primary receiver, you're not going to look there. You're going to throw it to a guy in double coverage because you trust him. So Lorenzo needs to be that guy to tie the buckner. He needs to go to him and say, look, I'm your guy. Trust me. And then spend time with him and make Tyler believe that he's the guy and that he can trust him. Um, and that's about it. And then, and then as far as the receiver room is concerned, Lorenzo would have to be the guy who says, this is the way we, we're going to do things. Um, and he's going to have, and he's going to win the respect of everyone by, by talent and by uh, making plays in practice. Corey, it's been fun to, watch you grow into a media career if folks want to keep up with what you're doing what are the best places they can they can find you yeah the indie on nbc podcast it's on youtube and wherever you get your podcasts uh, that's the best place and um every saturday there's a show on nbc called one team the power of sports uh, it airs saturday morning so check your your local listings uh where we tell great stories about um 
people in sports overcoming the odds. So those are the, probably the best two places to find me and Twitter at C Robinson NBC. All right, Corey, that's all we have for you. We really appreciate you taking time to talk to us and uh, always enjoy getting your insight. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Tyler. As a reminder, the Inside ND Sports Podcast is presented by Dead Soxy, maker of the best dress socks you'll ever wear. And this past Saturday in Columbus, I got another example of why I can say this and, and mean it. Uh, Tyler will be able to test. It was a long day. We got up really early, put on some no-show Dead Soxy socks uh, probably at 7.30 in the morning and didn't take the socks off until 5 in the morning <laughs> when we were done with all our writing and editing. And I'll tell you what, it my compliment to Dead Soxy to the product is I felt comfortable all day, at least where my feet did, um, being on my feet a lot and just being awake for a long time. My contact lenses didn't hold up so well, but my Dead Soxy did. If you want to take a look at the products, and there's some great colors and, and different styles, not all of them are the no-shows. They got the traditional dress socks and the casual socks. Go to deadsoxy.com, and you will get 25% off with the code LUCKY. And, and a few other things I want to say about Dead Soxy. They have the patented technology with the no-slip guarantee. And that even happens sometimes with the no-shows. If you get cheap no-show socks, they end up sliding off your heel, and then you're kind of stepping on them and, until you can get a point where you can take your shoes off and not gross everybody else out. <laughs> um, they're premium product made from bamboo for a luxury feel. And they also have custom socks for organization. So if you're looking to create a, a certain look with your organization, you know, get in touch with Dead Soxy and they'll, they can design something special for you. So again, deadsoxy.com, 25% off with the code LUCKY. All right, now it's time for questions. Our question segment is powered by AcrePro Midwest Farm Group. When it comes to land sales, it pays to have experts in your corner. AcrePro Midwest Farm Group are your local farmland specialists. With decades of experience in Indiana agriculture, no one knows the market better. Whether you're doing a 1031 exchange or simply buying and selling farmland, your local AcrePro agent will walk the land with you and ensure the deal is done right. Visit AcrePro.com or call 765-587-3185 and talk to your local land expert today. Again, 765-587-3185. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at EHansonND. Eric, I wanted to start with two questions that we had that were pretty similar that I thought we could sort of morph together. The first one was from at Drew Brennan 77. Pretty disappointed in the O-line from Saturday night, removing Jarrett Patterson from the conversation. What do you think was the major problem and how does it get solved in the next two weeks? Sometimes the Harry Heastan hype is too much as Notre Dame's offensive line rarely plays well in big games. And the next question was from at Shannon Marks. Yes, the O-line was missing Patterson, but how could they look so bad, especially in communication, handling stunts, and passing off the pass rushers? It looked like early 2021 season. These are highly rated, experienced guys with a proven O-line coach. Um, so I, I thought Shannon sort of identified the major problems that Drew was asking about. So let's boil it down to this. One, how could the offensive line look so bad? And two, how does it get solved in the next two weeks? Okay, let's start with 
um, Ohio State. You know, Ohio State has some incredible talent in their front seven, but it was a front seven that didn't consistently play well last year, and that's why they changed defensive coordinators. They were 59th in the country in total defense each of the last two years after being number one the year before that. Um, and so in hiring Jim Knowles, the thought was those five-star front seven guys are going to start playing like five-star front seven guys. And I thought their athleticism showed up. Now that doesn't mean Notre Dame shouldn't have a counterpunch to that. And I think, uh, you know, Corey Robinson answered this pretty well in the, um, in his portion, but I'll, I'll add my spin on it too. I think, um, you know, the environment communication wasn't going to be great. Um, there had to be nonverbal communication and you could tell at times the linemen were kind of struggling talking to each other. Um, I think another reason why Notre Dame struggled was at center, you know, Zeke Carell had had such a good spring and such a good August, and it didn't show up. And I, I'm not trying to single him out, but your center has to be a leader on that offensive line, especially in those kind of situations and identifying fronts. I just felt like he took a step backward in that game, um, and he's going to have to have a much better game. Okay, so how, how can it get fixed in a couple of weeks? They will not be facing either schematically or – um, personnel wise for quite a while anything that resembles Ohio State and I think Cal might have a decent front seven but but not an elite front seven I mean they'll see it Syracuse's front seven is really good at the end of October and Clemson is probably the best front seven in the country um, and so they have to get better for that even without Jarrett Patterson, there has to be better continuity on the offensive line. There has to be better communication, better chemistry. And again, I think it starts with center play. So we need to see a jump and see Carell's play, whether Jarrett Patterson is back or not. I think once Jarrett comes back, it's going to be helpful because Jarrett can talk to Zeke. He can remind him things, having played that position the last three weeks. And again, we've seen it. I, I can remember in 2017, the year that they won the Joe Moore Award, there was a guy that called the office and he said he didn't ever want to hear again about um, Quentin Nelson and Mike McGlinchey being future first-round draft picks, which they ended up not only being first-rounders, but top 10. <laughs> um, there's, I do think it, it does take a while sometimes for ha the Harry Heastan effect to kick in once you get into games, because you're learning, but Harry's going to help them process that information. So I would not say, I would not call this an override, overrated line at this point. If we want to have that conversation in October, we can revisit it then. Yeah, I, I would echo a lot of your sen sentiments. I, I think um, zeroing a little bit more on the like Ohio, like, the, the miscommunication aspect of it, Ohio State is so good that if you if you're a second late, if you look in the wrong direction, they can take advantage of that. Um, and I don't know that Marshall or UNLV or Cal or a number of the teams that Notre Dame plays throughout the seasons will be able to sort of take advantage of that in the same way um, that Ohio State was. But I think you you still have to use those opportunities 
in your upcoming games to improve and, and eliminate those miscommunications um, because the standard is that you can't have those. Uh, they, they're not acceptable. Harry Heastand will not be appreciative of them, um, and I'm sure there's been plenty of discussions about those, and there are probably plenty of discussions on the sidelines at Ohio State as well. Um, but you have to sort of just co- run through those situations over and over until it sort of becomes second nature. Um, and you have to be prepared for any number of different, different possibilities because they don't necessarily, you never know exactly what they're going to, the, the defense is going to throw at you. Um, I don't, uh, Shannon uh, said that they were highly rated experienced guys. And I, I, I tend to agree that they are experienced um, whereas Marcus Freeman talked about them being inexperienced that the only, in my opinion, the only one that can say that they're inexperienced is Blake Fisher um, because he did only play in two games last season, but Joe Alt played plenty last season to, in my mind, to be considered an experienced player. Um, even Zeke Carell has played enough throughout his career um, to be an experienced player. He might not necessarily be as good of a player as some of those other guys, but he has experienced Andrew Kostovic played, last year and him and Joe Alt played together last year. So they have experience playing with each other. Certainly Josh Lug and Blake Fisher didn't play together as a guard and tackle combination. So I think that is where the areas you see like, okay, maybe those aren't, it maybe it doesn't necessarily mean matter if they're experienced individually, but you'd have to have that experience playing next to each other and knowing how the other person will react and knowing how the other person communicates. Um, so those are, those are some of the, the the points that they have to sort of improve on and focus on in the next couple of weeks to get better. Um, and uh, I think my instinct is that, that it will happen, but certainly they have to prove it. Next question is from Cheryl Russo at Cheryl R. Bunch of Numbers. Do you think that when Patterson is healthy, he should move back to center? In addition, should they rotate Rocco Spindler and Josh Lug? Let me start with the second part of that. I do not think that they should – rotate Rocco Spindler and Josh Lug. I think if Rocco shows that he's Josh Lug's equal, and I I think Rocco probably is going to end up being the more talented player, but his experience versus Josh Lug's experience, Josh is the better player in this snapshot. Can you rotate guys in? Uh, Notre Dame did that one year with Robert Hainsey and Tommy Kramer, and it worked. I don't I'm not a big fan of that, uh, proponent of that. But uh, so if Rocco earned that, then maybe Rocco should be starting instead of rotating in. I don't see that happening at this point. Should you move Patterson back to center? I think that's. I think it's too early to say that. I don't. I don't ever want to rule something like that out. I, I if if it makes Notre Dame a better team for him to be at center and someone else to be at offensive guard, then by all means do it. But we don't know that yet. We haven't seen Jarrett Patterson playing guard, and and that could make Zeke Correll a much better center. And let's give Zeke a chance to learn from the Ohio State game and and see because he had a lot of rare, very good practices, enough to convince Harry Heastan to move a three-time uh, starter or three-year starter at center to offensive guard. So I'm willing to kind of let this play out a little bit. Yeah. I, I think for the, maybe for the first time I started to wonder, did Harry Heastan move Jarrett Patterson to guard because he didn't like the guards? Um, or was it, or was it because he liked Zeke Carell at center? Because I was like, well, maybe, maybe he didn't think Andrew Kristoffic would play that well. And that's why he wanted Jarrett Patterson in there. Um, 
So, so I don't know. I, I want to see Jared Patterson at guard first before I get, would give it serious consideration um, because that was what Harry Heastan believes was the best offensive line combination. And I think he knows that better than any of us. Um, so like if you put Jared Patterson in at center, you still have a potential weakness at guard. Um, if Andrew Kristoffic plays the way he played, I, I, that was something I should mention. Like, I don't necessarily agree with Corey Robinson in that, that it was like clearly the left side of the offensive line was better than the right side of the offensive line. Or, or yeah, I think, yeah, that's what he said. Um, I think both sides had their, had their issues. Um, so as, as for Rocco Spindler, I know we loved him as a recruit. I mean, we would be the first, I, I thought he was going to be better than Blake Fisher immediately at, at Notre Dame. Um, and certainly I've been proven wrong on that. Um, so I have to eat that, but Rocco Spindler just isn't on the verge of playing time. And despite, I mean, Marcus Freeman said that he was competing for the left guard spot, but I never believed that from what we saw in practice. Now, granted, we didn't see as much practice as we'd like to, but Rocco Spindler wasn't do, do, taking those reps uh, when we were in there. Um, and even in warmups, Michael Carmody was the number two left guard on Saturday. Uh, so to me, that tells you everything you need to know about what Harry Heastan thinks of Rocco Spindler's readiness to play. Um, so I, I just don't see that happening. Maybe he is ready to play and they're they're keeping it concealed and not playing him for some reason. I, I just don't know why if, if Harry Heastan believed Rocco Spindler was ready to play. He probably would have been playing over Andrew Kristoffic in the first place. So I just don't know that that's um, something we're going to see unless Rocco's making serious strides in the middle of the season. And I, I want to just one little programming note. We're recording while the polls are coming out, and the first one has come out, the coaches poll. And in a top 10 matchup, both teams dropped a little bit. Ohio State went from two to three with Georgia – who was very impressive in routing Oregon, moving from three to two, and the Irish dropped from five to nine. The AP poll come out while we're recording as well, I believe, unless we're really fast at answering these questions. So number nine, Notre Dame this week. All right. Next question is from Mike at KYND fan. Give Tommy Reese's play calling from week one a grade. Well, I have to grade it on a curve. Um, and the reason I do that is because the head coach asked him to play a certain way so that they could play keep away from Ohio State. So I think Tommy probably had some other ideas that he would have done if this was somebody other than Ohio State and that you were trying to keep the number one offense off the field. So without the curve, I give it a C. And the reason I give it a C is I thought Tommy got too conservative in the second half mm -hmm. when they were, when the Irish were playing with the lead work where I think he had an opening there to, at, you know, at least get a field goal or a 17, seven lead would have been really uh, daunting for Ohio state. They would, I don't think they would have been patient enough to have a 14 play drive uh, later on if, if they were down by 10 points. Um, and that could have certainly helped. And and there were other, you know, kind of personnel things. There was this one little play where Buckner took a few steps and just kind of a real short pitch to Audric Estime. And that's a Chris Tyree play. And and they actually did run it to Chris Tyree, and it was a much better play later. So there was some play construction things. I thought Tommy was creative with some things in the first half. Um, so if I'm grading on the curve, given what the assignment was, 
I'd probably move him up to a B minus, but I I thought uh, you know, and he and was a little bit of a blind date facing Jim Knowles with Ohio State's personnel, where in the Oklahoma State game he had no Jim Knowles, but he had the Jim Knowles scheme and somebody else calling those plays. So B minus with the grade curve, C with uh, just a straight scoring system. Uh, well, I actually split the difference between those, and I went with a C plus. I, I think that's probably higher than what some fans wanted to be, um, but in my opinion, that's um, weighted in Tommy's giving Tommy a higher grade because he was one asked to play ball control, like you mentioned, and two that I don't believe all the bad plays were actually what he called. I think sort mm-hmm. of observing what was what happened. Um, I, I think there were probably some bad RPO decisions or checks by Tyler Buckner. Um, for instance, uh, uh, the third and 18 run, I did not think that that was what the the, the play was. I think that would, might have been an option, but I don't think they're like, no matter what happens, you are running the football here. Uh, uh, so um, the offensive pass interference on Matt Salerno was a good play call, but Salerno was covered. And uh, Buckner, if he just looks to the other side of the field, he has a one-on-one to the top of the screen instead. And uh, that probably um, gives Notre Dame a better chance, especially when he sees Salerno isn't open because Salerno was it was a good design thinking that, that he they might forget about him or they might get a, get a, get a, a cornerback out of leverage. But that did never happen. There was not an instance that Salerno was open and, and Buckner threw it anyway. Um, and so, I mean, we have to remember, like, what happens is that doesn't mean like especially on pass plays like he doesn't have to throw it to the person he throws it to. He has options. He has progressions. He has reads. Um, so uh, I think sometimes uh, a play caller maybe gets more blame than than he deserves. And then sometimes they certainly get more credit than they deserve sometimes as well. Because if you have good players, you look a lot better as, as a play caller. But bad execution will always make a play caller look bad. So um, and, and, and for instance, like Mar- uh, I, I think some people were very confused about the way the first half ended. Even I was as well. But Marcus Freeman took the plan for that. He's like, hey, I I wanted to take a shot and I didn't communicate that to Tommy um, in time. And so we run on first down and then I take a timeout and then we take the shot. So it was a very strange sequence um, and uh, probably would have been a bit different if um, every, everything was sort of ironed out on the sidelines for Notre Dame. I, I think one thing that you have to keep in mind is you you have to design your entire game plan offensively and defensively. They have to live together and, and, and they have to sync up and you're, you're trying to win the game. You're not trying to impress recruits and you're not trying to show what you could do in a playoff game in 2020 Notre Dame played a lot of ball control for the first time in the Brian Kelly era. They were a big time of possession team. It's the way that team was constructed and what, Notre Dame found out that season was that didn't work in the playoff that eventually that they were going to be have to be a team that could do both that they could ball control and be dynamic or or they're not going to win a playoff game Notre Dame has to get to the playoff first and in beating Ohio State they were not going to be able to play Ohio State's game they were not going to be able to you know get into a track meet with Ohio State Eventually, Notre Dame is going to have to show it can do both. But in Tyler Buckner's first start, and given the way that game needed to be played with a very very narrow path to victory, I thought it was the right strategy. What Were all the plays perfect? No, because I gave it a C. But uh, 
But I do think that the strategy of shortening the game was absolutely the right thing to do. Yeah, I think they just probably stayed in it, stayed conservative for too long, and that 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 certainly, that backfired on them. Uh, next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie of the following, which were better, worse, or as expected, and what could be done to improve them? Offensive game plan, offensive line, and tight end play, especially blocking pass rush and edge play. Well, I thought the offensive game plan, from the standpoint of what they were trying to accomplish, I would say better. I thought that was a smart game plan. Offensive line play, worse than I expected, even with no Jarrett Patterson. Tight end play. I would say about what I expected, but I I thought they'd still find ways for Michael Mayer to kind of open things up and make them pay. So maybe a little bit worse. I thought Kevin Bowman played well. We really only saw three tight ends in the game. I think Davis Sherwood might've got in just a little bit. So those are my, my assessments. How about you, Tyler? Yeah, I went worse across the board. Um, I, I thought, I thought there they could have been better in all those aspects, and they weren't. They didn't meet necessarily my expectations. Um, I, I thought they had to find more ways to get like Lorenzo Styles the ball, sort of as Corey Robinson said earlier. Um, especially you see the first big play, it's like, all right, Lorenzo is going to have a have a good game. They're going to get him involved, and then to not not uh, throw him the ball. Uh, and get him get him a catch for the rest of the game is is not not good. The offensive line we've covered um, plenty. The tight ends uh, w- weren't very sharp in, in blocking. Um, certainly as as receivers, they were. Uh, uh, Michael Mayer was fine. He didn't do anything spectacular. Um, but obviously, Ohio State was doing what what they felt they could do to limit him in as many ways as possible. So, um, the the tight end blocking it wasn't up to snuff. I I mean. I, I I mentioned on our Monday Night Live show last night that there was a, the very first play that Lorenzo Styles played. Michael Mayer missed a guy um, that 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 hit Tyler Buckner that ended up being a 15 yard penalty. Um, and then the, I think it was the, the, one of the next three plays. I don't remember which if it was the first, second, or third down. I think uh, Kevin Bauman gave up a pretty bad uh, block and, and prevented them prevented Notre Dame from getting some good yardage on a, on a running play. So. Um, the tight ends have to have to bring it. If if they're going to play two tight ends, um, those guys have to be good blockers out there because they're going to bring extra defenders into the box. Next question is from Gary Friend on the Insider Lounge. Why were there no screen passes or slants in the game? You know, I think Corey answered that a little bit in the uh, not not that you could have anticipated that, but I'm glad that he did in our first segment. I think there were those opportunities there. I think Tommy Reese skinnied the playbook down a lot. Uh, Could they have had more slants? Yeah, I think so. Uh, But but again, once they knew Notre Dame couldn't run the ball effectively, they could lock onto the receivers. They could bring more pressures. Uh, Nothing was going to work quite as well as if – there was a balance that you had to worry about uh, with those plays. Um, how many screens did we see, Tyler? Not many. It was I like mean, a tight end screen, yeah, right? There were, yeah, there was a tight end screen, and I think both tight ends were actually the same side, and they threw it to, to Mayer and Bauman blocked him. Um, I don't I don't recall many others. I, I know that, that third and 18 that I mentioned that Buckner kept it on, there was an option to throw a, a, a screen to Tyree who was sprinting to the right with some re- receivers in front of him to block. 
um, but they didn't throw that. And there might have been some other sort of RPO looks like that where they could have thrown the screen if they wanted to and, and did not. Um, but not, not a lot of screens come to mind. So, I, again, I think uh, N- Notre Dame was preoccupied and I, I guess uh, somewhat justifiably so to to establish the run game. It just never, never came. And I think because there wasn't a variety of offense available to them, Ohio State was able to cheat on a lot of plays. I think they could have blown up some of those screens. I, I do like the thought of running more slants. Um and uh, again, maybe a a little bit more experience at Tyler Buckner. We'll start to see those kind of plays. Yeah, I, I don't want to pretend that I'm a passing game expert, but to, I me, will. to me, when you talk about slants, I mean, you're talking about receivers coming into the middle of the field. And when you're trying to protect the football, there's because there's a potential for more batted passes, more uh, an interception pass. You're running your receivers into where linebackers are, especially if the defense is loading the box because they're expecting Notre Dame to run, which Notre Dame was running a lot. So I, I don't necessarily, I didn't, I didn't leave the game and say Notre Dame should have ran more slants. I don't, I don't, I I'm curious where that concept is coming from and what, what, what makes that a, an enviable play. I could see maybe like a, a slower developing drag route or crossing route to get um, maybe if, if they're in a zone and you get Braden Lindsay running past a linebacker, like that's obviously a, an enviable position, but you also have to have good pass protection to have Tyler Buckner back long enough for Braden Lindsay to get over there and do that. So um, I, 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 I touched on the screens when you asked me about it, I think screens, especially on the, on the edge, like when you're doing receiver screens and there might've been another receiver, like a short receiver screen that I don't know that that did much, but I, I think that well, it wasn't completed. All all their completions to wide receivers were down the field. Right. So I, I just think that, I mean, you have to have, I mean, screens, especially on the edge, you need to have speed. Um, and I don't know that Notre Dame is going to be faster than Ohio State on the edge. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. And there, I, and then in terms of like running back screens, you you think of those as like, well, they're getting a lot of pressure on the quarterback. So let's leak a running back out and, and get some linemen in front of them. Um, I would be interested in that. I, I thought we'd see um, like Chris Tyree used a little bit more creatively as a receiver and and maybe not necessarily in screens, but it, whether it's angle routes down the field or some different ways to sort of take advantage of that. So I, I don't, I can't tell you why I, I wasn't, I wasn't behind the decisions, but those are at least my thoughts on, on why those necessarily weren't uh, priorities for Notre Dame against Ohio state. Uh, next question is from NDNYG39 on the Insider Lounge. Why was Matt Salerno the obvious target in key downs rather than Lorenzo Styles, Tobias Merriweather, et cetera? Well, I mean, to be honest, in non-penalized downs, Matt Salerno was only targeted once, and he made a pretty nice catch for first down. So yes. he was targeted twice, once through a penalty, and so – I'm not sure that I agree with the premise there that that he was overused. And then there were only 18 targets for the entire game, and eight of those went to Michael Mayer. Uh, Tobias Merriweather wasn't targeted. I'm not trying to be a smart guy here because he was on the sideline. I mean, he didn't play. So um, you weren't going to target him. I understand there's, you know, he's six foot five, he's athletic, and it's exciting what he's going to be able to do someday. But Saturday wasn't the day to do it uh, again there were just weren't a lot of wide receiver targets period so um 
you know, when Notre Dame throws the ball a little bit more, I think you'll you'll see, you know, wide receivers being targeted. But Salerno just one one pass that didn't draw a penalty and he made the play. Yeah, the Matt Salerno hate is is a, a bit out of control. Like thinking he was the obvious targeting key down. Like there was literally two balls thrown at him. One, he made the play, one he didn't. And then when he didn't, he never had a chance of making the play. That way it wasn't his fault that the ball wasn't completed to him. Certainly it was his fault that he committed an offensive pass interference. Although I think some people wearing Notre Dame glasses might think that it wasn't an offensive pass interference penalty. But I I I I just think there are some people that people like we need to get players on the field and this is the guy that needs to get off the field. So anytime we look in his direction, it is like, this is our game plan. I, I just think that's a bit of an overreaction. I don't think uh, Notre Dame went into the game or, or even operated in the game as if Matt Salerno is the guy that they're looking for in key situations. It, when he was, uh, when Notre Dame thought they, that they had an opportunity to exploit a mat- matchup, they went to him. Like I mentioned previously, Tyler Buckner shouldn't have thrown that ball to him on the wheel route. He should have looked elsewhere because that play was not open. Um, I like I mentioned, Styles should have been targeted more. That I don't understand why they didn't. And, the, and Notre Dame has to find ways to get him the ball. Tobias Merriweather just and Marcus Freeman was asked about this. He he needs to get the trust and confidence of the coaching staff to play, um, just like Eli Raritan and Holden Stays, a couple of other freshmen who we think are talented and have bright futures. Um, I don't we we didn't think that those guys. I like we thought I thought they would play. Um, I, but I also didn't think they were all like any of them were going to make five catches against Ohio State. So um, Notre Dame likes Jaden Thomas better than Tobias Merriweather at this point. But Jaden Thomas was a zero in the passing game. He didn't have a catch, so that that's not good. And um, either Jaden Thomas has to get better or get better opportunities, or Tobias Merriweather, if he earns them, will get some start to get some more opportunities moving forward. Next question is from at Rick D Irish. Do you think Tommy Reese called a conservative game because it's in his DNA as a Brian Kelly disciple? Also, why in the hell did Tobias Merriweather not see the field? We've already covered that. And then one more comment and three catches from our receivers. Come on. Um, no, I don't think this had anything to do with Brian Kelly. Again, it went back to what the head coach asked for. Um, and then, and then in the second half, it wasn't, necessarily what the head coach asked for I think Tommy had an opening I think he was just trying to read the room and say you know let me keep things within what I think Tyler Buckner could do that's that's what uh probably was going through his head but I do think that game plan put Notre Dame in a position to take some shots if you're going to pull off the upset then you do have to get a little bit daring in those situations and he didn't but I don't think it had anything to do with Brian Kelly no, and, I, don't, uh, I don't either. And then three, three passes the wide receivers. Yeah, again, when you only have ten completions, and you have an all-American tight end on your team, that that kind of splits the math. You got running backs to catch. Obviously, there's not going to be another game like that. Um, I don't even think the Clemson game will be like that when Notre Dame plays them in November because we're going to see better versions of the offensive line, better versions of the receivers and better versions of Tyler Buckner at that time against a really good Clemson front. So I think it just is an anomaly of the way the game was played. And in some sense, the way the game had to be played. Yeah. uh, um, I don't know that I have much more to add. I I just think it's a little, I think it's a little bit disrespectful to Tommy Reese to, to to think that uh, like his offensive 
understanding and uh, concepts are limited to what Brian Kelly taught him. I I, I just don't think that's the case. Um, so, and I, and I don't think it had anything to do with the play calling uh, in this game. It was a, agreed upon a game plan with Marcus Freeman. Next question is from SJB 75 on the insider lounge. Was Marcus Freeman forced by Jack Swarbrick to hire Tommy Reese as offensive coordinator, as some have said, or was Marcus Freeman allowed to hire the offensive coordinator he wanted? Well, if you listen to Marcus Freeman's press conference, he made hiring Tommy Reese a priority. So uh, unless he's, you know, just making that up, it sounded like he was pretty happy Tommy Reese is there and he's been pretty consistent about that. I mean, I never got the sense from Marcus at any time that he didn't trust Tommy or that he regretted that Tommy Reese was the offensive coordinator of this team. I think he's pretty excited about him being there. Did Jack Swarbrick think it was a great idea for Tommy Reese to be retained? Yeah, he wanted Matt Bayless and Tommy Reese, and I think Marcus Freeman was absolutely on board with with both of those hires. So I don't think anybody's arm was twisted in that uh, scenario. Yeah, I mean, if if we're comparing it, if the spectrum is had an offensive coordinator search and forced on the other side, I think it's closer to forced than had an offensive coordinator search. Um, it was part of the plan all along for Tommy Reese to be Marcus Freeman's offensive coordinator. Um, and that was it was sort of a package deal. I mean, Tommy Reese could have just left and became the offensive coordinator at LSU if he wanted. Um, but or Miami at one point. Um you're right, but this was when when Marcus Freeman was in the position yeah. to uh, to become the head coach. Uh, but he could have so, said, "Yeah, take that job. Go ahead." Right? Yeah. If Marcus Freeman really didn't want him, he'd say, "Hey, like I know Jack wants you to stay here, and but I really don't want you to. So if you just take that, you make it easier for me." Uh, yeah. So um, I I I don't know. I, I he we've had, people ask us like if 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 Marcus Freeman wanted to fire Tommy Reese, would he be allowed to? I, I, yes. I think that would, that would be possible. Uh, so, I mean, I, I don't know what else to say. I think, I think we've sort of been over this before and it's not necessarily new ground to cover. Yeah. Next, I, I just think we need to just hold on to the tar and feathering Tommy Reese. Let's see what happens these next few weeks. <laughs> well, people, well, I think they've already moved on from top, tar and feathering Tommy Reese to tar and feathering Jack Swarbrick and blaming him for making Marcus <laughs> okay. Freeman to be his offensive coordinator. That's, I see. What's okay. That's what's happening here. Um, next question is from at Bobby Bancroft. How would you compare Tyler Buckner's passing ability to Malik Zaire and Brandon Wimbush? Of those three, Brandon Wimbush had the strongest arm. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think he's the best athlete. I think Tyler Buckner is a really good athlete. Um, I think Tyler Buckner will be far and away the best of those three quarterbacks. I think he processes things better than the other two. Um, and I think he's more accurate than the other two. Again, um, you know, Malik, uh, at least in his short and medium range, he could drill holes in your hands. I don't know that he was as good with the deep ball. Brandon Wimbush could throw it 70 yards in the air, but uh, you didn't always know where it was going to land. So Buckner would be, I think, the most complete quarterback and the and the best, most accurate passer. If I had to draft, I would take Buckner first. Yeah, I I want to see more. I mean, it feels a bit unfair to like have seen all of Malik Zaire's and Brandon Wimbush's flaws as quarterbacks and to to compare Tyler Buckner too, because I think um, we just have to see more of him to know like if he. 
if he's going to we be do there. but i mean they're asking us to project and and i think that's i mean we can all be like stephen a smith and love somebody after they've gotten great i think the trick is trying to project and and we're not always right i mean i i i didn't think ian book was better than brandon wimbush so that was one one area and, and i thought uh, darnell yule was going to be a really good player but i'd say by and large you know i you know, I thought Kyron Williams was going to be really good, and he was before he was good. So um, I think for us to prove that we're right, we need to see more of them. Right. But I, 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 I think I, that's what he's asking us to project. No, I understand that, and I just don't know that I, I can confidently do that at this point. Um, I thought Brandon, Brandon Wimbush was, as a high school player, he was extremely accurate. He completed a very high number of his passes, um, and then, well, then he was What's the dude that played – safety for Alabama that was his wife Fitzpatrick receiver. yeah he was I think that's part of it was Minka was his wide receiver but he was I mean I didn't watch a lot of high school game film I watched Wimbush and he was and I think some of his issues at Notre Dame were mental too right so I guess so but when you're talking about someone's ability, it's like, what are you capable of? I thought Brandon Wimbush was capable of anything. There was nothing I didn't think Brandon Wimbush couldn't do. And then it turned out he couldn't do those things. And so, like, I don't know that, like, if I said, like, Brandon Wimbush had a clearly uh, better arm. I think he could throw the deep ball better than Tyler Buckner can. Um, so I know that's not going to give people warm feelings when I'm saying Brandon Wimbush could do things better than what I think Tyler Buckner can at this point. But I also don't feel... I have a way a way smaller resume, even a high school resume of what Tyler Buckner was able to do because he just didn't play that much high school football. So I just think it's really, I mean, it's almost impossible to do. And we've got and, so so and limited he didn't play near the level of competition Wimbush did in high school. Exactly. That Northern New Jersey was something. And and Tyler played in at a small school in San Diego. Now he would have played his senior year at Helix, but that never happened because of the pandemic. Yeah, so I mean, the things I'm confident in saying is that Wimbush had a, a stronger arm than either of them, um, and then I, I also think that Tyler Buckner's release is quicker than either of them. That's the thing that I think that he does better than those other guys. He gets rid of the ball quicker um, than Malik Zaire and Brandon Wimbush. Next question is from East Goshen Irish on the Insider Lounge. Why didn't Jordan Botello play against Ohio State? Well, he did play on special teams, but I know that you mean why didn't he play at defensive end? Notre Dame stuck to an eight-man rotation on their defensive line. They had, uh, you know, two deep at every position. I think the games where you're going to see Jordan Batello besides teams that are overmatched are teams where maybe Notre Dame shows some three-down looks. Um, you know, Notre Dame played a lot of nickel, so there wasn't occasion for a third linebacker to be on the field maybe ever. Do you remember three linebackers ever being on the field and on Saturday? Yeah, they did play some base. I don't know how frequently, but there there were times where they played base base defense. So so there weren't there wasn't much base defense on the field. And again, Botello would be a third linebacker or he would be a defensive end. And I I you know they felt like Justin Adam Alola and Isaiah Foskey, they're all American, were the best options there. But I I I do think you're going to see plenty of Jordan Batello, and I think it's going to be game specific. There's going to be games where he doesn't play very much and games where we're talking about him a lot. So I, I'd say be patient with him. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I I think people have run out of patience with Jordan Botello, and if he's not if he's not impacting the game yet, why why do we keep expecting him to? Um, well, I, just, I mean, because you've got uh, Foskey and Justin Adamalolo aren't going to be on the team next year. Somebody's going to have to be. Well, yeah, but they're on the team right now, so that's why he's not playing yeah. at Ohio State. That's the, I guess that's what it boils yeah. down to. He's not better than those guys, um, and I don't know why anyone would believe that he is. Uh, he hasn't shown a consistency as a player. Um, he has discipline issues as a player. Um, and, and he hasn't figured out how to use them. If they thought he was going to be a, the, one of their best options, he'd be out there. So um, he's become a bit of a mythological player um, that everyone is intrigued with because uh, they don't get to see the mistakes that he makes that the coaching staff sees. Next question is from CJ at Irish Disney 33. I didn't find myself thinking that the, the defensive line played terribly, but definitely didn't find myself thinking that they played as well as I thought or hope they would. Depth appears to potentially be an issue there. Your thoughts from the game and moving forward for the defensive line. I'm not sure that I think uh, depth is an issue, but I could see why you would come to that conclusion based on how well Ohio State ran the ball against Notre Dame in the fourth quarter. Uh, they rotated very liberally eight players, and and uh, I thought, that showed up in the first three quarters. And I, I do like this defensive line step. I think one of the reasons you didn't see more big plays and I didn't, I hadn't watched enough CJ Stroud uh, to maybe realize this is how fast he is in terms of extending plays. The fact that he doesn't run the ball downfield, I think makes people think that he is not, quick with his feet or fast and he is he escaped a lot of the pressures and, and Notre Dame had some good ones and he just it shows why he's the Heisman Trophy favorite you know he could buy himself time find people down the field throw the ball away he he wasn't taking many sacks after uh Howard Cross got him well he didn't take any sacks after Howard Cross got him the first time and really didn't let the uh let the pressure affect his throws. So I put a lot of it on how good of a player CJ Stroud is. I'm trying to think of the rest of the schedule. I don't think that there's anybody that's that's closest league. Maybe the kid at USC at the end of the season is somebody that will be saying those kind of things about it in late November. But um I do like this defensive line a lot. And and I think they can play better. Yeah, I don't think depth is an issue. My guess is that take is based on the fact that they sort of got beat down at the end of the game. Um, and I guess I, I, I don't really know how to solve that. I mean, I, I suppose you could have played third string guys earlier in the game. Um, so maybe they're a little bit fresher at the end. Um, but then if you play those third string guys, maybe maybe the defense doesn't play as well in the first half uh, if Gabe Rubio and – um, Alexander Ahrensberger and Jordan Battelle are getting getting more run. So um, maybe that could have been something used to offset. I just think it's sort of a, just all sort of came crumbling down because they've just been asked to play at such a high level for for the for the length of the game and did for so long. And then just you were bound to sort of mess up at some point and it came at the, at the worst time. Um, I don't think they did a good enough job with the pass rush. But like you mentioned, I think a lot of that had to do with C.J. Stroud being good get, good at getting away from it. Um, and But also, I thought Ohio State did a really good job pass blocking. It, it was winning its uh, pass protection matchups, and um, that offensive line is good. But I, I, I'm not too concerned about 
the defensive line moving forward and, and believe it will remain a strength. Next question is from Irish I 12 on the insider lounge. Have your opinions on ND season outlook changed more for the positive or negative after the performance against Ohio state? It hasn't changed at all for me. I still think I'm looking at a 10 and two team that could grow into something more than that. And, and certainly with the wrong circumstances in terms of key injuries could maybe fall short of that. Um, I picked by a much different score. I picked Ohio state to win by 11. Uh, it was a much lower scoring game than I anticipated, but all the potential things that I like about this team are still alive and all the potential pitfalls that could uh, ruin that 10 and two prediction are still alive. So nothing's changed for me. Yeah. My prediction was nine and three and that, that certainly hasn't changed. Um, I made that prediction because I figured not everything was, would go as planned in terms of Notre Dame's improvement across the board. Uh, the secondary may be better than I thought based on how it played against Ohio state. And oh, Notre Dame's offense might not be as good as I thought, but I, I'm not that interested in week one de- dictating how I feel about the rest of the season. So um, I just think it's 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 our first uh, data point, um, but I don't think it's the most important one. Uh, so I, I think that uh, you have to add them all together and look at them uh, as an aggregate in the end. And uh, I know that's hard to do as a fan, but um, I wouldn't uh, – let the the outcome of that Ohio state game get you too high or too low. Last question is from Irish runt on the insider lounge. How can Notre Dame improve in the NIL and transfer portal space so we can remake our roster faster and get elite recruits? Well, let's start with the transfer portal. Notre Dame is going to probably need to dip into that with its wide receivers because you're going to lose Avery Davis you're going to lose probably Joe Wilkins, Braden Lindsey. Um, you're going to be have similar numbers as you did, and you're still going to have a lot of young guys. So I think they're going to have to dip into the wide receiver pool um, in, in the transfer portal, and they're going to need to be on top of that as the season goes along uh, and, and look for people in December that they can bring in in January, get into spring practice. They're not going to be able to wait until May and bring somebody in the summer. And as far as like widening the pool of players and not just having to rely on either grad transfers or very young players, it's very difficult to get a junior or senior through the transfer portal academically to Notre Dame um, is to work with the deans to uh, and 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 Notre Dame is doing that. Their administration, the athletic administration, is working with the deans to try to get them to understand about transfer credits and to maybe be more accepting of transfer credits when the student has shown that they can do the work instead of being so picky about, you know, well, this class doesn't match up with this class at Notre Dame. If it's if it's close and it's a 4.0 student or a 3.7 student, why are you keeping that student from transferring? So those are some of the things that can be done there. As far as the NIL, I think it would be best for it to play out a little bit more. Notre Dame is not going to do anything illegal. They're not going to use guaranteed money of incentives uh, that go against NIL rules. But I think if people look at this Notre Dame team this year and in this cycle and look at some of the opportunities being afforded athletes, 
um, and look at what some of the collectives are doing legally, I think that they can be very competitive in recruiting. They're not going to get everybody. There's going to be some people that want to guarantee and you're just not going to get those kids. And, and there's going to be a handful of them in every class, but there's enough uh, elite players that are going to be patient enough to not require a guarantee that, that are going to bet on themselves and say, I'm going to be able to get the opportunities. I'm good enough to get on the field. and I'm good enough to get to the NFL. So I think uh, just patience with NIL. Yeah, <laughs> I think, I mean, you, I agree with what you said. I just don't know that anything's going to happen soon. Um, I think it's going to be a gradual thing, uh, like getting Notre Dame's admissions department to just make change their policies and procedures. Like that's that's not a thing. You just like push a button and it changes. Uh, it's like moving a boulder. You got you got to put some put some time and effort into that. So I I don't I don't know how that's going to change. Um, to get elite, I mean, you're not getting elite recruits out of the transfer portal. I just don't think that Notre Dame's ever going to be doing that. They can get talented graduate transfers, um, and even I, I, I guess maybe you call Brandon Joseph an elite recruit. I w- he wasn't an elite recruit as a high school player. He became an elite player um, for a season at Northwestern, um, and, and there may be some examples of people that you can pluck like that. But sometimes you you like guys like Charlie Jones. Notre Dame is like, yeah, we 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 take him, but he wanted to go to Purdue and he had a connection to the Purdue's quarterback and that seemed to work out for him pretty well in the season opener. So um, it, there's a lot of things that go into getting transfers. Now, if you want, if now, if your idea is, well, let's just throw money at transfers. I don't know that Notre Dame's going to get in that game either. Although there's certainly, if there's a, you're not waiting as long as like, if you're a recruit and you're a junior in high school and say, yeah, once you get here, there's going to be all these opportunities for NIL for you. But if you're a transfer, it's like, yeah, get here in January and there'll all be all these NIL possibilities. So maybe, maybe that's more attractive for, for Notre Dame uh, candidates in the, in the uh, transfer portal. But um, I just don't think there's going to be any sort of flip that switch. That's just going to pour gasoline on the fire and make Notre Dame's recruiting in the, in, in high school and, and at, from transfers just all of a sudden be great because of money that's being poured in for through, through NIL. One last quick note, the AP poll did come in before we went off the air. Notre Dame is number eight. They're number nine in the coaches poll, number eight. And the AP Ohio State dropped from two to three in both polls because of the impressive Georgia victory over Oregon. All right, that's it for today's episode of the Inside Indy Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with the coolest person you know. Thanks to everyone who came through with the Apple Podcast ratings. We blew past the 50 ratings uh, by kickoff on Saturday. Special shout-out to Bill underscore RBE3boy. This game's too difficult. Domer Cat Dad and JMD2017 for the stellar reviews. Keep them coming. Uh, Our new YouTube programming is up and running. We hosted our Monday Night Live show last night on Monday Night Live, as you can imagine, uh, which you can rewatch on our Inside Indy Sports YouTube channel, and we'll be bringing you our Place Your Bet show on Friday with Marshall Predictions. We'll be back on the podcast next week to preview Notre Dame's return to to uh, to Notre Dame Stadium. And until then, stick with InsideNDSports.com for all your pregame and postgame coverage needs. <laughs>